0: Hello, and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we have the distinct pleasure of chatting with Jim Downing, the current chair elect of the NSCP Board of Directors and current CCO for Morningstar, who shares with us his five fundamentals of compliance and provide some fantastic insight into how best to run a compliance program that has multiple business lines and a global customer base. In our headline section, we do another dive into some recent buzz and regulatory activity surrounding crypto assets. We'll cover a defense of family offices from a couple key regulators. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of What's On My Mind, where in the spirit of this year's Olympic Games, we look back at a quote from the greatest sprinter of our generation, to help provide peace of mind to compliance officers everywhere, no matter the stage in their career. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, we're going to talk crypto. Specifically, we're going to talk about a letter Senator Warren wrote regarding SEC regulation of crypto exchanges. In a letter to Chair Gensler a few weeks ago, Senator Elizabeth Warren requested information on the SEC's authority to regulate cryptocurrency exchanges. She highlighted certain unique risks of manipulation and fraud in connection with these exchanges, stating that they lack regulatory protections, typically associated with national securities exchanges, and that they may be able to avoid regulatory obligations if the asset being traded does not qualify as a a security under federal law. She said due to these regulatory gaps, investors and consumers are currently, quote, vulnerable to dangers in this highly opaque and volatile market. Senator Warren's letter cites a number of studies and articles asserting manipulation, improper trading activities, and fraudulent trade reporting on cryptocurrency exchanges. To determine whether congressional action is needed, Senator Warren asked that SEC Commissioner Gensler address a few points of inquiry, in particular whether or not cryptocurrency exchanges uh, uh, currently operate in a fair, orderly, and efficient manner the differing characteristics of assets traded on cryptocurrency exchanges and those on traditional securities exchanges, the scope of the SEC's existing authority to regulate cryptocurrency exchanges, and the extent to which international coordination would be needed to address these regulatory gaps, whether Chair Gensler agrees that CFTC Commissioner Dan Berkovitz's assessment that the absence of, of intermediaries to monitor decentralized finance platforms means a lack of investor protection, and if so, how the SEC should address that issue, and whether decentralized cryptocurrency exchanges warrant any additional protections that would be relative to a, a centralized cryptocurrency exchange. What I find really interesting about Senator Warren's letter here is that it it probably kicks off, in some ways, the kind of legislative bent to, to try and, and expand the authority of the sec or i guess potentially the cftc to try to regulate some of these different cryptocurrency exchanges and you know i think a couple of the important questions that that senator warren asks are, are really getting to some questions that i think many people would probably say have relatively straightforward answers including that Currently, the SEC does not have authority to regulate exchanges that trade cryptocurrency assets because they're not securities. And given that these exchanges are not regulated, I'm, I'm guessing here, speculation, right? But, but that the SEC probably doesn't feel that the exchanges are fair, orderly, and efficient. It'll be interesting to see if in Chair Genzo's reply, whether or not he plans on engaging in some of that. You know, international coordination, I know that was something that was very important to Chair Gensler during his time at the CFTC. It'll also be interesting to see if between the two different regulators, the SEC or the CFTC, if there's a nod one way or the other on who would be the best uh, potential regime to to cover those types of assets. For our next headline, we look at an op-ed piece written in Bloomberg Finance from a few weeks back. In it, SEC Commissioner Peirce and CFD Commissioner Brian Quintenz argued that the collapse of the family office, Archegos Capital Management, does not necessitate new regulations on family offices. They assert that certainly the family office failed, and and failed in spectacular fashion, I think is how they put it, as it quickly accumulated losses in the derivatives products that were uh, uh, far too large for the firm to cover. The, the counterparties to the firm's trades were actually able to weather the event fairly well. The commissioners contend that policymakers and commentators really dramatized some of those systemic risks arising out of the event, and in some ways misinterpreted the purpose of the, CF, of the SEC and the CFTC's regulatory regimes. They state, quote, Beyond hyperbolizing the event's systemic risk, These sentiments misunderstand the rationale underpinning the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission's investment firm regulatory regimes. The commissioners further stated that investment advisor registration and regulatory regimes focus on investor protection, with a specific emphasis on protecting outside investors through disclosures. Such protections really aren't necessary when the investors are all in the family and thus are not needed for family offices as the purpose of the office is really to cater to a wealthy individual or family in which only the management of the wealth of family members and key employees is permitted. As to effective oversight regimes, the commissioners highlighted the CFTC's existing swap dealer registration, capital, margining, and reporting rules which provide the CFTC with real-time data on banks trading operations and to the SEC's recently finalized security-based swaps reporting requirements which go into effect later this year. What I think that's really interesting about the op-ed is that it, it tends to take a very thoughtful in many ways measured response to this singular event by obviously a couple key players uh, as, as you know respective heads of key regulatory regimes. An initial response by some of the commentators out there, was really for uh, uh, the regulation of family offices because, you know, Archigos was structured as such. And, and I think, as the commissioners pointed out, systemic chaos evidenced in this market event was was nil. And, and the purpose of regulation is to help investors in need of protections under the law. And that in a family office scenario, um, you're just not going to have that 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 same kind of opportunity take place. Moving into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome in chair elect of the NSCP board of directors, Mr. Jim Downing. Jim is the global chief compliance officer of Morningstar Inc. Uh, He has more than 20 years of experience in compliance in both the broker dealer and the investment advisory industry. He was previously the global CCO for Aon Retirement Solutions. The cco for bmo wealth management and an executive director at jp morgan chase where he was the head of the wealth management compliance program prior to aon jim held other compliance rules and was also a finra examiner from the chicago district office for five years he has a jd with honors from Taft law school and a master of accounting with honors from roosevelt university along with a host of series licenses from FINRA. Um, And as I mentioned at the top, Jim is incredibly active with the NSCP, currently serving on the board of directors as the chair elect. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on today's program. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Uh, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for um, inviting me and uh, really looking forward to having a great conversation
0: yeah no thank you and as we look to open up that conversation i think one of the things that strikes me about your background in particular uh that i find really really interesting in both its sophistication and and the kind of nuance that would go along with it but also i think at the same time uh, the the skills that would be transferable or or certainly relatable to really all compliance programs and that's more at the global level in building a really diverse compliance program that might be multifaceted depending on the types of jurisdictions and other regulatory issues that you would encounter and I think you know both in your current role at Morningstar and certainly in some of your prior roles at at Aon, you would have had that experience in in building a really diverse and global compliance program and so i guess just at the outset one of the things that i, I would love to to hear from you just to get a broader perspective about is you know what are some of the key elements or even maybe the, you know, the top two or three things that you would look to do if you were going to build a, a diverse and, and global compliance program?
1: Well, you know, one of the first things to do is to kind of check your ego at the door. Right. So when it comes to a global compliance program, I have to realize what I don't know. And so, you know, when we look at, let's say, either Aon or my current position at, at Morningstar, there were several jurisdictions where I could in no way consider myself an expert. Right. And so, what's really important there is that you make sure that you have the right talent on board individuals who can claim expertise but that also are willing to kind of bring you along for part of the ride because there's 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 parts of compliance that kind of permeate any jurisdiction and so you have to kind of check your ego when it comes to being a specialist in a specific jurisdiction but also make sure that you know you have the ability to kind of show the value that compliance brings to the organization um, be able to speak to foreign regulators and, um, you know, ensure that they kind of see that uh, you have the necessary experience to be where you are. And then second of all, I would say is making sure that that it's so important with that kind of diversity. And so cultural diversity is actually really important here because you're dealing with vastly different types of cultures across the globe, ones in which you have to ensure that you kind of get get or gain an understanding of their culture before you're trying to kind of manage people there, right? And so, you know, I'll give you an example right off the bat. For people that I've had in Australia, you know, sometimes when I uh, am talking to someone, particularly a man, I'll, I'll happen to say, oh, well, thanks a lot, sir, and I'll call them sir. Well, in Australia, that can be actually kind of a derogatory term. And so if you were to kind of say that to someone there, they would think, oh, well, you know, that's not very nice. Why are you saying that to me? And so understanding kind of those cultures that you're dealing with, how do you do that? You know, you can do your own research or you can just sit down with the person and say, hey, tell me about your culture. Tell me about your values. And then finally, what I'd say is that, ensuring that your department has some sort of a mission statement, a vision statement, some values that you put together, that you get everyone on board for the same program. And so, you know, that was one of the first things that I did at Morningstar when I came in was I completely introduced a vision statement, a mission statement, and, and key values, and then hosted town halls with various you know, jurisdictions to kind of walk through them, answer questions, make sure that they understood kind of where I was coming from, but also to get their buy-in to make sure that, you know, they see that we're all on the same team. We may be in a 13-hour different time zone, but it's really important that we're all kind of playing from that same handbook.
0: That's really good context, Jim. I'm glad that you brought up a couple of key concepts in your response that I think are, are really important for a lot of our listeners to kind of dig into in, in particular you know you you talked about the culture of compliance and certainly even the, the, the different kind of cultural aspects of some of the constituents that you would be uh, uh, both trying to serve and, and to work with on the former of that in building kind of a culture of compliance inside the firm, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, especially because as in your new role at Morningstar and knowing that, you know, professionally, you you are probably doing a lot of this right now inside your firm and trying to build rapport and 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 then also kind of establish what types of guardrails and other stuff we have and at the same time, right, just like building out those those different relationships inside your firm. Talk talk to me a little bit about how you have found, like you know, some tips, some best practices on how you can properly build a culture of compliance inside your firm.
2: Yeah, of course. No, thank you, Patrick. And you know, It's so important to, number one, when you kind of first get there and you first start meeting some of these either executives or heads of sales or product or operations or finance or kind of all the various departments, is to really take some time and to sit down and and to listen to them. You know one thing i can tell you is that even through my interview process when meeting with some of the various executives in the different regions i would always ask this one very important question which is who's responsible for compliance what you're looking for there is a very specific answer and what you want them to say is well i am you know because at the end of the day we're not the ones necessarily out there meeting with clients selling products offering services doing marketing you know doing all these kind of um uh, control functions or, or 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 various other aspects of the organization we may design the program and um, kind of administer it at the end of the day, but we're not the ones necessarily responsible for compliance. And so, you know, right off the bat, that'll give you a gauge there. A lot of people generally tend to find that it's it's more difficult to deal with kind of the sales people within an organization. You know, those are the individuals mm-hmm. who tend to kind of push the envelope a little bit. Mm-hmm. One of One of the best questions that I always love to ask them is just tell me about your clients. You know, Tell me what makes us so valuable to our clients. And so beginning to learn what the value proposition of the organization is, is a very important aspect for us in compliance. And then asking, hey, can you pitch me like a client? can you set up a demo? I want to walk through our product. I want to talk to, you know, your head of sales. I want to talk to one of your more junior salespeople, and, and, and have them pitch me like I'm an organization or an individual or, 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 you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, for example, with like operations, hey, let me come and sit down. So I went and sat on the floor with of operations and like sat down with them. I sat down with the support team that answers calls from advisors and like watched them walk through and actually listen to the calls. You know, I was mm-hmm. muted, right?
0: Mm-hmm. But,
2: um, you know, so I mean, really digging deep down to get a fundamental understanding of how they operate. You know, I think I'm fortunate because Morningstar is, you know, ethics is um. Uh, one of their key values, and um, I've been, you know, through, throughout all my interactions with individuals, I think it is a very highly ethical organization. And so people generally want to do the right thing. But another thing that's, that's kind of important is getting that seat at the table. And you know, what I mean by that is getting invited to the leadership team meetings, getting, getting invited to the big presentations, you know what I mean? Getting on the right committees and, and, and kind of having that seat. And what I can tell you is that it's not just given, it's got to be earned. And so, you know, you're building trust with these individuals when you're actually asking them about their clients digging into their products, digging into their processes, you know, learning about kind of their day-to-day, then they see you as someone who's willing to partner with them. Because the last thing you want to do is kind of come in, pound your fist on the table, say, this is how it's got to be done. You know, this is mm-hmm. how I've seen it at other organizations. You know, I mean, really, like words like that don't make any sense to me because this isn't that other organization. Right. I mean, now, if they ask you for that advice, hey, how did you do that there? Or how do they do that there? Then you give that advice. But you don't come in and just right off the bat say, well, we were
0: doing it that way there. So you should do it that way, too. Right. That's a great point. No, And I, I really, really like what you said there about how you can engage those other business units in ways that ultimately you're meeting those divisions of the organization exactly where they are, right? Like for the operations teams, you're meeting to find out what their day-to-day, what their day-to-day looks like for the sales teams, for client service, for any of those uh, different divisions or subunits inside the firm, you're really showing to them, that you genuinely care about the value that they're adding to the organization. And it, it, it reminds me, it's actually reminiscent, Craig Watanabe was a guest uh, in season one of the podcast. And we t- talked about this in a couple of different areas, uh, a, a, a related point in that when you're a compliance officer, if you're able to demonstrate to the various business units that you're looking to serve, that, mm-hmm. that that you are in truly their partner and that like you're willing, like, like you just said, like to meet them where they are. And when they ask you for your advice or for your counsel, you provide it and in, in, in many ways, sometimes maybe even go just a little bit further than you need to, right? Like like yeah. do, do a little bit extra. Man, all of a sudden, to your point about getting in those top level meetings with those that, that are on the leadership teams, they really start to want to include you in those because yeah. they really value your feedback, right?
2: Yeah, 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 I mean, 100%. It's also, you know, being kind of a, um, uh, kind of being willing to feed on their content. So obviously Morningstar produces a lot of content, right? Because we're research providers, we provide white papers, there's a podcast, there's all these kinds of things. As a compliance person, you may think, well, that, that's not for me right and so you may think well i'm too busy reading up on rule changes or all these other things no be a consumer of the content of your organization if they're really releasing things out to the public look at their website and i mean go back and look at their website continually don't just do kind of a once over every once in a while you really need to be a consumer of that organization to make sure that you understand kind of the pulse and really understand the strategy as well Mm -hmm. you know what are they looking to do i mean Mm -hmm. you know that's such a key question to ask you know kind of like the top level executives at your organization and say you know what do you want to do in the next five years do you want to grow revenue 10 times do you want to move into retail you want to move into institutional you want to you know create mutual funds etfs whatever it is Mm -hmm. so that you can get an idea of what they're trying to do and then Mm -hmm. you can show them how you can help them do it
0: Yeah. Right. But see, you're
2: not going to be able to do that if you don't know what they want to do.
0: That's exactly right. And by the way, for I'm sure all those uh, compliance officers and other folks listening to this podcast, what what you just articulated to is is showing compliance, not just to be. I don't know you know we, we we often get pigeonholed into you know the no police yeah. or whatever else right name your name your favorite analogy um but what you're showing there is you're demonstrating you're demonstrating that you're a problem solver yes right? yeah right yeah
2: i mean i i mean and and so the conversation i have with most of the people in my department goes like this look every type of transaction service product that that we offer involves some level of risk. There is no such thing as kind of a riskless transaction. Doesn't matter how vanilla it seems, there's always some level of risk. Right? And so the business is willing to accept that risk. And so if I want 99% of the time you should be saying yes. We should be getting to yes with the business because most likely there's a way to do it. Now, there is that 1% of the time, right? Mm -hmm. The the Mm -hmm. idea is just going to be so crazy, so out of this world that we kind of have to say, you know, that's just not going to work. You know, we just can't do that. And I said, in that 1%, you should be coming to me and telling me you said no, because Mm -hmm. someone else is going to come and talk to me. But that other 99%, that getting to yes, again, that helps build the trust, the confidence in our program, in our department with the business folks.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's that's fantastic uh, background. And I think really is great foundation for us as we <laughs> look to kind of the, one of the, it's a great segue into the next part of the conversation that I really wanted to get to talk to you about. Um in, in you know, we, we talked about this a little bit, you know, prior to today's show, but you've essentially over the course of your 20 plus years in compliance, really put together what I think are are some key fundamentals, five kind of basic fundamentals that really help to outline not just you know a, a broad picture of the types of uh things that you would you know typically find in a compliance program but also I think in a lot of ways and I'm sure you'll flush out these ideas as you talk about each one of of the fundamentals but like these are the exact activities that we were just kind of talking about right yeah. like that, that like that, that each one of the you know as part of the five fundamentals and as part of what you would look to do as you were building a a compliance program both at a global level or or at a very local level you've got these five key fundamentals but inside of each one of those fundamentals are a series of activities that ultimately are going to show you to be the kind of compliance partner um, and, and trusted resource that that your business constituents would, would really value to have within the organization. Yeah, well, no, no, no,
2: I mean, you know, 100%, and they permeate both investment advisor, broker-dealer, even on some level, a bank, mm, um, mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. you know, some of these five key fundamentals, that's where I pulled a little bit of this from. I mean, granted, I've also pulled it from things like you know, the Advisors Act and FINRA rules and speeches and just, you know, I had developed these probably five or six years ago, but now being able to kind of run an entire department on my own, it's nice to be able to implement them and kind of see the fruits of their labor. But you're right, it could be used for a very large organization that's multi-jurisdictional or Mm -hmm. a very small one. I mean, Mm -hmm. and, you know, on the back end of these is one other very, very key fundamental is that If you do these, you you know, if you work within this stratosphere of these five key fundamentals, you're very unlikely to cross that line into supervision, Mm. right? Where Mm -hmm. you as a compliance officer might be held liable. And so and so, you know, that's 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 important for those who kind of have those concerns about CCO liability, compliance officer liability, you know, getting into these five five things, you're very, very unlikely to kind of cross that line into a supervisory role.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And look, I know that the NSCP is in the process right now of building. I mean, certainly the NSCP has been uh, probably the the industry leader, really, as it relates to tackling the issue of cco liability mm-hmm. um and and has already worked at many different stages with the regulators um obviously it was a major topic when when sec commissioner Peirce came on to the podcast even just this past january um and i know we're in the process of building the the, the framework right now but it is certainly a hot topic and so i do appreciate that additional context cuz i think it would be important for for a lot of our listeners um well yeah. so let so let's so let's get into the different fundamentals and i guess you know to to start maybe i'll ask you when you're thinking about the compliance program and you're thinking about these five fundamentals in in question you know wh- wh- where do you like to start <laughs> i mean I, yeah no,
2: no no and and i mean that's a great question and i always always regardless of this program's brand new or it's been going on for years you always start with a risk assessment and Got so it. and so what I mean by that is that gives you an idea of not only kind of what are the regulatory requirements of this organization but it helps you identify the controls aligned with each of those kind of regulatory you know risks that are out there and then, and then gives you kind of, you know, spits out a residual risk for you to be able to understand an organization to say, okay, where are the more risky areas? Where should I be focusing my limited resource and attention while I'm here, you know, while I'm kind of currently active here? And so, you know, in order to kind of start that off kick that off that's also so so that's the first kind of key fundamental right a risk assessment also that lives in there is your reg change management program right so whenever a rule changes or something like that your knee-jerk reaction should be well how does it affect the risk assessment let's go Mm -hmm. back to the risk assessment and so you know it should any risk assessment should should always include these three things what's your inherent risk so what's the risk of that regulation if you had zero controls given your current activity you know generally that's that's much higher but then what are your controls that are in place well those controls that are in place mitigate that risk so they give you your residual risk your residual Mm -hmm. risk is what you live with every day and Mm so and so you know now when doing this it's easy to say, well, I'll just write out all the regs. And maybe if let's say you're just a smaller investment advisor, maybe you should do that. You know, there's only 26 or so parts to the Investment Advisors Act, you know, in a much larger organization, that's, you know, multidimensional, it's much better to do this in a kind of thematic way. Let's put it that way. And right. so it, it and so, you know, instead of listing FINRA's suitability rule, the Investment Advisors Act, you know, maybe ERISA, you just create one that says, you know, fiduciary obligations. And I'm, I'm aware FINRA doesn't have fiduciary <laughs> obligations. I like to think that And so, you know, creating these kind of categories, those can be applied globally right because there's fiduciary obligations in the UK there's fiduciary mm-hmm. obligations in Australia in India in Dubai in South Africa and so that way it, it can also kind of permeate borders do you know what sure. I'm saying as opposed yeah, to like yeah if I did it by rule this thing would be ten thousand lines long right mm-hmm.
0: and wouldn't be of much use mm-hmm. one of the things that you allude to in kind of talking about that you know that that specific you know component in 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 what you're looking to build there uh, in that fundamental that I really like a lot is by doing that risk assessment you're in a lot of ways you're you're setting the table but you're also getting everybody mm-hmm. c- compliance legal business on oh, the yeah. sa- on the same page so that everybody is speaking the same language
2: oh right? yeah Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, this should not be done in an ivory tower. You know, Mm -hmm. you need to collaborate in order to understand their products and services that you're going to apply these controls and identify these controls. You need their help to do that.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And so and then then once you're done, you sit down with them and say, well, this is what I, you know, you know, kind of this is the end result. What do you think? Sure. You, know, you know, the other thing is when you're done with them, you can also build these kind of heat maps, if you will, that are also great to use with senior management. Great to show, you know, kind of all these other folks kind of how productive you are. Right. What you're working
0: on. You sure. know what I mean? Yeah, you can you can immediately demonstrate some of your value to be yeah. right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Because you're showing the, the uh, it's like the old and, and again, the the math side of my brain waved bye-bye to me quite a long time ago, <laughs> but I do remember there being times when I had to do math and, and my teacher constantly remind me, reminding me to show my work. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so this is a great way for, for you to be able to do that.
2: Yeah. And, and so, and so from there, from this risk assessment, we move, it, 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 it kind of spills directly into the next fundamental, which is policies and procedures and training and the reason those are grouped together i'll just kind of say off the bat is because the compliance training really should be somewhat limited to just what our policies and procedures are so when you think about as a compliance officer the training that you're doing with the business That should primarily be around what are policies and kind of procedures and maybe the process around that too. And that's okay, even though that's kind of the procedure. But so those two things are really together solely for that reason. But So from the risk assessment, you build your policies and procedures where you identify who's doing what and what the controls are. Then you go train, you know the uh, employees about how to pre-clear a trade you know disclose an outside business activity you know um uh, get suitability information you know what are those requirements all those different kinds of things and so one kind of, you know you, you start with the risk assessment it moves right into the policies procedures and training
0: yeah yeah that's that's good on the on the policies and procedures and training front i imagine some of that uh pre-work i'll call it preliminary work that you did and this is getting back to a little bit of what we talked about at the, at the top of the show where you were meeting those individual business units on uh, uh, you know at, at their at their level right and oh yeah and going through some of what their day-to-day right like what the basic blocking and tackling of their jobs and and their responsibilities look like i imagine a lot of that comes in in, it comes back in at this point and can be really, really valuable as you're setting up that training.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, for example, you'll have a basic understanding of what kind of software they're using, what kind of programs they're using. Do they, you you know, are they recording information on paper? Is it in a database? Is it over the phone? Is it via email? You know, so on and so forth. You know, that's where you're going to, gain a lot of that information again this should not be you know your policies and procedures should not be done behind a closed door that needs to be done in collaboration with the business and so making you know making sure that it's true to form because I could write a policy and procedure and put it on a shelf and think it's great but (laughs) you know no one's going to read it it's not going to do anything which is which is one of the reasons why I actually I don't consider kind of a policy or a procedure to be a control Training on a policy and procedure is a control, but just the policy and procedure is not because for that reason, I could write it and put it on a shelf. Yeah,
0: sure. No, that's a great point. It's been a a consistent mantra in other episodes of the podcast from some of the other experts that we've had on, which is that, you know, you can't just write a policy and and like you said, (laughs) let it collect dust on the shelf. And it just came up especially true again as we uh we we just completed the reg bi Masterclass mini series right mm-hmm. and we had a a total of uh, 11 different experts come on to talk about their thoughts and Man, I I will tell you what, if any of the uh, of the talented men and women who came on the show had one thing in common, it was don't just have a policy sit there, but make sure that you're able to execute on it and that you're testing it, which actually, hey, that's a perfect segue. Uh, That is the perfect segue. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
2: So so, you know, we start with risk assessments and moves to policies, procedures, training right into monitoring and testing and so what we're doing there is we're monitoring and testing the controls that we identified you know uh in the risk assessment the controls that we laid out in the policies and procedures and and we're doing it also on a risk-based approach right Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. this also kind of feeds back to the risk assessment where we have higher risk items you know that they have a higher residual risk we should be monitoring and testing those way more often than where we have a lower risk it's not to say that you never do it but where you have a low risk you may only look at something once every couple of years right you know but whereas you have a higher one you're looking at them
0: maybe monthly you know maybe even more often see that's a really let's let's dig into that point sure a little bit because I think that is so critical for so many of our, our compliance officers, you know, general counsels, those that are in this space to to hear. Because I feel like, I mean, and you know, there is so much that is out there right now that is demanding on a compliance officer. I mean, oh, just, yeah. just in the subject matter, uh, I, won't, I won't say expertise, I'll say working knowledge, yeah. subject matter, the breadth of that subject, because you've got to know everything from federal and state securities laws. Okay, that's that's a given, right? But let's throw in there ERISA, right? For yeah. some folks yeah. are dealing. Let's throw in their data privacy, right? Yeah. Cybersecurity, like yeah. you name it, right? And like as a compliance officer working at a registered investment advisor or a broker dealer, you are going to be tasked with so much different stuff to cover that I think there's this feeling sometimes that that like uh, of being overwhelmed, right? Like how, yeah. could I, how could I possibly be able to test or to be able to effectively supervise or cover, right? Like a, a, a monitor, you might say, all of these different aspects of my firm and all the different stuff that's going on. And so I think your approach and what you've articulated there about it being a risk-based framework is really important and and maybe if you would you know i know you talked a little bit about the the heat mapping but just talk a little bit more about that i guess in general how you look to build a risk-based framework and then how the testing would kind of relate to that
2: yeah sure no and and i mean you know one other really important aspect to that patrick is that you're also under resourced Right. Because I don't think I've ever been to a compliance department or spoken to a compliance officer who's talked about, I got all the resources (laughs) I need like this. It just doesn't exist. And so and so and so, you know, in this kind of aspect, when I look at a heat map and I look at all the various areas to where we have a much higher risk, my general rule of thumb is I'm going to spend 75 percent of my time in that area of the heat map monitoring and testing those things Mm -hmm. the other parts so so let's say kind of like the middle range i may spend 15 percent of my time right monitoring and testing that and then the low end range of activities where i feel like we have really good automated preventative controls very few errors or issues have ever come up you know when we've tested it we've never found a problem we, they have very strong controls. We consider that low risk at the end of the day. I'm going to spend maybe 5 10% of my time there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, think of 75% of my time and resource in terms of monitoring and testing is being done at a very, very high risk level.
0: Yeah. Right. And yeah. In
2: that kind of 75, 15, 10, you know, mm-hmm. ratio when you look at it may may look skewered because maybe you have a ton of stuff that's, that's, that's only low risk. But you really need to focus your efforts at the end of the day on kind of what's the highest risk and highest risk doesn't necessarily mean it's, let's say, fiduciary related. What it could mean is that you're actually doing something um, at like a medium risk, but it has very, very poor controls you know sure. where you're where where you just have errors all the time and customer sure. complaints or kind of you know it's all very manual and paper based it's not preventative
0: mm-hmm. you know
2: and so you know that's always kind of been my rule of thumb when looking yeah. at monitoring and testing now when looking at these fundamentals you know one of the key things that I try and do globally is put together kind of guidelines on how you monitor and test not it's not a policy because i got to be very careful right because i have so many different kind of jurisdictions chiming in with different requirements and all these different types of things but Putting in kind of guidelines, you know, this is the this is a sample size I want you to take, you know, or I want you know use random sampling when possible, or you know use this spreadsheet to create your sample, use this format for your testing report, mm-hmm. you know, those those types of things uh, are really beneficial when you kind of are in a much larger
0: organization because it normalizes the results. Mm-hmm. More. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, I, I mean, it's a great point. And it it actually, to, to me, as you, again, would be trying to, it, it, the other thing that that would do, right? If you were able to provide that additional, I'll call it kind of le- level set guidance for those different parts of your organization, that's also gonna build, again, like consistency in the application of that testing, that's number one, it's going to improve the overall results, right? Mm -hmm. So like getting back to how everything feeds into each other, right? If you've got better data that then you're able to plug into the other parts of what you're doing, the reporting and the risk assessment and the other stuff that you're going to be doing down the road, that that's going to be really effective. Number two, that's exactly what, like, if you're a regulator, then that's like the kind of stuff that you're like, wow, gold star for that firm. Great job being able to essentially affect the proper you know, compliance testing regime in a way to, to build consistent results.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, let's be very clear that compliance testing is not the same as internal audit. Right. Right. And and so, and so being in a much larger organization and I've I've worked for primarily larger organizations, there's always been an internal audit function. Internal audit is generally interested in outcomes. So, Hey, they're going to perform the exact same process as the business seeking to get the same outcome that the business wants. Whereas compliance, you should really be focusing on what's the control. Mm -hmm. What is the control within that process? Is that control working? That's mm-hmm. what we're looking at, right? Because yeah. we then take that information back, plug it back into our risk assessment. You know, yeah. it may it may change something from high to medium or medium to low at the end of the day. Maybe we say, hey, your control's working great.
0: You yeah. Know. Right. So that's that's a great actually. Th- speaking of, you know, at the end of compliance testing, yeah. What we know the where we should go now. Right. Yeah. So so talk to me about what happens at the end of that process. Sure, sure. So so from your
2: kind of compliance and testing, then we move into issues and examinations. Now, obviously, we're all very aware of examinations there. I'm talking about from regulators and really the only aspect of that fundamental is that we're there to help our colleagues through these examinations, you know, to help facilitate the exam, make sure it runs smoothly, set up the interviews, so on and so forth. The issues part Mm -hmm. is generally what was uncovered throughout our monitoring and testing. So when we've actually found problems now here, you got to be really careful, right? Because so we uncover some big issue here, but we don't own the issue. The business owns the issue and so what we can do though is we can sit alongside them because now we've tested the process we understand it and we can give them advice on how to fix it right hey we could use software for this it would help or it would help if you actually had another person look at this or you know so on and so forth and and so give them advice track how they're doing so you know you uncover some kind of you know Breakdown within the account opening process. Let's say they say they're going to have it fixed in a month. You can't just say, "Okay, sounds great." You know, you got to follow up with them in a month. Hey, did you fix it? <laughs> and so, right. and so, you know, we give them some advice. We're going to do some tracking around that, and then, and then, following into kind of our our, our final part of the fundamentals is the reporting aspect. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. so the reporting is going to show the metrics from all that monitoring and testing, those issues and exams. It's even going to show metrics from our risk assessment or our, or our reg change management. We may even show metrics from our training that we've conducted or how many new policies that we've written. And so all this reporting is either done internally to senior management or maybe, you know, maybe we're helping facilitate reporting externally. Mm -hmm. to um uh to our regulators and the you know form adv form pf you know all these all these different kind of regulatory reports that we have to do from that reporting fundamental it all pours right back into risk assessments and then you start right over again Mm -hmm. and so and so you know it's sort of an ecosystem when you look at it because because it all goes around in a circle and what's also really important about this is it all revolves around big circle in the middle that I like to call advice Mm -hmm. because that's the advice that we're giving the business on kind of a day-to-day basis, you know, when they come to us, Hey, what should I do about this? Or I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And that advice should be drawing from all of these five different fundamentals. You know, it should be drawing from where's our where's what's our most risky behavior? It should be drawing from what do our policies and procedures say? It should be drawing from, well, you know, we tested that process and they're talking about they want to increase the capacity of that, and that wasn't very good, or hey, we had a, a recent exam or there's an outstanding issue, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And 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 I mean, that's kind of a sixth fundamental, but it's not really because you got to do the five fundamentals first before you ever get to that advisory <laughs> piece. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a chicken and an
0: egg. But, right. Uh, yeah. You know. No, but it's a good point. I'm glad that yeah. you mentioned it, because I think the other thing that that the last part that you mentioned, I know, you know, look, we talked about risk assessment. Right. We talked about policies and procedures and training we talked about monitoring and testing we talked about issues in exams and then we talked about reporting and how that ecosystem of the five fundamentals is going to is going to kind of feed off of each other but at the end of the day as a compliance officer you're still charged with delivering right like counsel advice oh, yeah. everything you're 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 delivering that value to the business. Well, how do you <laughs> deliver that? I mean, sure, all those other elements that we talked about—those five, you know, the the, the five different fundamentals—those are part. That those are part of what we do. They they represent parts of what we do, but really, on a day to day basis, in the interactions you're having with the business, that's ultimately going to be reflective of the advice and the counsel that you're giving. Oh yeah, oh and, yeah, and, and that's that. Honestly, gets back again back to what we talked about at the top of the show which is that to really become a trusted business partner and resource for your firms in a way where an effective culture of compliance has been built you have not only gone out of your way to collaborate and partner with the different organizations or business units or other advisors or folks inside your firm. But then you've also taken the steps necessary to, to kind of build out the actual substantive, the, the actual substantive data and metrics and other stuff that you can go back and say, hey, look, it's not just me. Like, like you said, sitting in an ivory tower and trying to say, "Oh you know thou shalt not do this, thou shalt mm-hmm. do this." you're saying, look, I've done multiple assessments of this, we've done testing of other stuff. This is what these are the results of that, and this is how it's going to make us better. We can inf- we can use that data to help us inform how we approach this issue in the future and make these requisite changes.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean 100 because you know it's it's easy to kind of shoot from the hip. When someone comes up to ask for your opinion on something, you know, you can kind mm-hmm. of just shoot from the hip and say, well, that, you know, it doesn't sound like we should be doing that. But when you have, you know, when you've covered these five fundamentals, you have a very good working understanding of the regulatory risk of your firm, its controls, what its policies say, you know what I mean? All these kind of various aspects, you know, what the regulators think, all these kinds of things that now you're making an informed decision. Right. And it's mm-hmm. so important based on that data. And it's so important to make decisions based on data. You know, mm-hmm. because data generally doesn't lie, right? Mm. It, it it just kind of is what it is. And right. so so it can it it can also help you. Gain credibility because you're saying, "Look, I'm making this decision based on these various factors, right?" That's right. As opposed to just, "I'm just making this decision <laughs> because I'm the compliance person."
0: Right. right? Yeah, I'm just making this stuff up anyway. Yeah, yeah, you know, right? yeah. watch me <laughs> exactly. All right, well, let, let's get you out of here. Uh, I've got two, two two additional questions. One is sure. going to be kind of the, the the final note on the compliance side of things, and then we'll we'll ask you a little bit of a a more fun question here here at the end. So the on the compliance part, I guess one final thing that I, I think a lot of firms, a lot of compliance officers and general counsels and others in the space can struggle with is you've built a, a, a great you know diverse and global compliance program even if it is at a local level you've developed a culture of compliance with the various business units that you have looked to establish you're you're utilizing right some of those key fundamentals right that, that you talked about in being able to really um, not only meet all of your re- regulatory requirements but really demonstrate your value mm-hmm. inside in inside the firm one of the key challenges that i think so many firms Uh, struggle with and this is especially true for firms like morningstar that operate at a global level or that have lots of different independent verticals of business uh, uh 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 areas and operations where you know how how do you manage some of the conflicts involved or or what are things that you're doing because look when you've got a huge research area and then you've got an investments area and then you've got other other areas mm-hmm. um you know what are ways that you have found effective to try to manage some of those conflicts of interest and what are what are you know one or two kind of tips or best practices that you would share with our audience
2: yeah no, well so most importantly is conflicts of interest should definitely be on everyone's risk assessment right sure. because sure because that is like uh, a huge regulatory risk. But, you know, what I can tell you, particularly if you're at kind of a larger organization, is that you need to be able to take that step back, right? I think sometimes you can see a lot of conflicts when you're down in the weeds. You can see it with a particular business unit, but then forget about that that business unit's conflict could also have an impact somewhere else in the organization. Mm-hmm. Now, even if, he, even if you're at kind of a smaller level, you know, like a, a, a smaller firm, you also have to consider, you know, what are other conflicts outside of kind of just what my business is. And so, so, you know, by looking at most importantly, kind of what are the conflicts that the organization has with its clients, but then what are the conflicts that our vendors may have? You know, what are conflicts that our owners may have, our employees may have. And so one of the things that I've done at that I did at Aon, that I've done it at Morningstar is let's create an inventory of all of our conflicts. Okay, so it can just be a simple Excel spreadsheet. What's the conflict? How do I either mitigate or avoid it? You know, and then and then maybe even, uh, you know, where do I find the policy and procedure on that? Or how do I test it? You know, mm-hmm. and so so you kind of take a step back. This is something again, can't be done behind a locked closed door. You sure. know, this needs to be done collaboratively. You need to understand who your who your business people's clients are, how the, you know, what they're for example, Morningstar, what's your methodology around doing this? You know, we have a credit rating business, for example. We do equity research, we do manager research. Well, if my credit rating business is out doing a credit rating on a bond for Ford, you know, do, do they talk to the equity analyst about that? Mm -hmm. You know, should they be talking to them? I, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Let's, let's, let's talk about this. And so, and so, and so, you know, don't be afraid to kind of sit down and sometimes have some of those more difficult conversations. I remember when I was an examiner at FINRA, one of my first exams, like this, 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 this woman I was on the exam with said to me, she said, you know, compliance isn't for the meek. And so and so, you know, hmm. what that what that means is kind of don't be afraid to have these difficult conversations. You yeah. Know? Don't be afraid of of asking about conflicts because people can sometimes get very defensive. You know, I don't oh, have any sure. conflicts. I always do the right thing. I'm not saying that you do, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> right. what I'm saying is that these can be real or perceived and that's right. what we need to consider. And so create that inventory, revisit that inventory. If you feel the need, set up a conflicts committee, mm-hmm. you know, even if it just meets once a year to go over the inventory and then, because, mm-hmm. you know, businesses change, you, you may, you may acquire a business, you may create new products, you may divest a business, mm-hmm. you know, All these things kind of are going to affect that. The conflicts inventory is a little bit different than your risk assessment because it is more or less an inventory, right? It is just a straight-up list of what's the business unit, what's the conflict, how do we deal with it? And yeah. so, uh, but but you can use that for testing purposes, definitely. Go to that inventory to say, okay, which one of these guys are we going to test today? Because, you know, we yeah. not right today, you know, this month, this quarter, whatever. And so, I would definitely recommend kind of every firm to do that. Even if you're a smaller firm, you may find it's only a half a page or something like that. But still, that sure. exercise is also going to look really good in the eyes of the regulator.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and and like you said, having the conflicts inventory there gives you of the full universe of Mm -hmm. items that that could potentially, you know, that you might be then providing a judgment call on or weighing the merits of as you make your risk assessment and as you right as you look at okay, well, here are some of my conflicts. Which of those, some of those, you're going to have. Really good internal controls for, and some of those maybe you you. It's an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> it's an opportunity to enhance some of your controls. On. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hundred percent. So, so let, let's get out. Let's get you out of here with something fun. Uh, again, really, <laughs> really appreciate all of that uh, uh, excellent, excellent feedback and advice for folks that are looking to build a culture of compliance and looking to, I think, really establish uh, some of those key fundamentals inside their firms. As we you know, c- continue through uh, the, the, the summertime here and getting closer and closer to the, the end of summer and the fall, what's, what's uh, maybe I'll say either the best book you've read or the best show you have watched over the last, we'll call it 12 months that you've uh, found, you know, just, that, just that you've really enjoyed watching or, or reading?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. so I am a huge fan of, um, Michael Connolly for, oh, sure. um, for our reading. So, so, um, obviously if, if anyone's seen the show Bosch, it's on a <laughs> prime, yeah. it's, which is just done super well. So my, my reading tends to go, I read kind of like, a an interesting book or like a business-minded book. And then I love to read fiction. And Michael Connelly has kind of always been on that list. One of my favorite books, though, that, that I've recently read, with I, I think I finished it about five or six months ago, is Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. and And I would actually recommend it for anyone in the compliance profession because it gets down to the innate trust we sometimes have in individuals and how sometimes that can be misguided and sometimes we're missing things that are out in the open because we're so afraid of societal norms i -hmm. mean he gets into things like bernie madoff's ponzi scheme And Mm -hmm. how it went so long to go undetected because Mm -hmm. most Ponzi schemes, you know, kind of run out of money after a certain amount of time, but his went on for years without having that issue. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. 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 Talking to strangers by Malcolm, Gladwell. well, Malcolm Gladwell is also one of my other favorite authors. He always makes you think, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. um, He's very, he's very, he's very thought provoking. Yes. Oh yes. And, And, um, also has hosted a, a number of different podcasts, but I, I, I like your Bosch nod. I, I will tell yeah. you, I am a total, total junkie for what I would call like investigation thrillers. Oh yeah. Um, total, like, you know, full court press junkie on, <laughs> on that kind of stuff. So I will, I am, I'm, I'm all caught up except for the the most current season, which I know is out. So I'll have to check that Yeah, out. It's good. Uh, it's good.
2: Yeah. I, I, I recommend it.
0: Yeah. Jim, th- thank you so so much uh, for coming on the podcast today. T- truly has been a-, a pleasure having you, and l- look forward to having you back here on, on the show uh, at some point down the future.
2: Patrick, I'm you know very grateful for you having me, and honored. And uh, you're welcome. I'm uh, looking forward to
0: listening to it one of these days. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Thanks, and take care. See ya. The final part of today's show features another installment of What's On My Mind. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents a tip of the cap to former Grouch-in-Chief and 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney, and will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a compliance issue affecting the investment management industry and our securities compliance brothers and sisters. In today's What's On My Mind, we look at a quote from Usain Bolt, or at least it's a quote people have attributed to Usain Bolt, I mean, come on, I'm a compliance guy. So, of course, I looked for the interview or the publication where he said the quote, and I did a decent amount of Google work and internet trolling to no avail whatsoever. Nonetheless, the lesson the quote speaks to still applies, and the meme where I originally saw it was really, really cool. So, so we're going to roll with it. It's not like I'm advertising gross performance here. The quote goes like this. I trained four years to run only nine seconds. There are people who don't see results in two months, give up and quit. Sometimes failure is sought by oneself. As we've alluded to many times on this podcast, compliance is hard. Being a CCO or compliance officer can be an incredibly difficult and many times unrewarding or uncelebrated position. One of my favorite moments from Rob Tull's interview in season one was hearing him talk about how many compliance officers often operate off one, limited resources, two, with unrealistic expectations, three, in an uncertain regulatory environment, and four, often wearing a target on their back from a regulatory perspective. And when you're in that position, and especially when it's incumbent on you to be perfect, when it comes to running your compliance program, it can be very easy to get frustrated when you don't see immediately the results that you want. When I think of the quote in the context of Usain Bolt's accomplishments, it actually makes the message even resonate more to me because when we look at Usain Bolt, we see this incredible athlete, polished and accomplished. And it's easy to think, running and winning comes so easy to him. But the truth is no matter what natural gifts Usain Bolt had, he had to put in the work, he had to put in the time. He had to fail over and over again before he could succeed. Similarly, when we might look at another compliance program or even a more seasoned compliance officer, it can be easy to feel frustrated about the state of our own program or our own lack of knowledge. It's so easy to do. But the truth is, Usain Bolt was running for 20 years before he ever won an Olympic gold medal. And so even when the results don't come quickly, don't worry. The best compliance programs didn't happen overnight. The key is to stick at it with an Olympic level of determination and endurance. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors. Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Jim Downing, for sharing with us his five fundamentals of compliance. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast, or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more.